Thought before we uh, have prayer service, uh, maybe we could stand and uh, lift up this brother Bill's in bed sick and a bunch of other people fighting sickness. So, Ron, you want to lead us up? We'll just lift those people up. all ready to meet the Lord this morning? Yes. Good. Well, my partner got sick during the night too, so <laughs> can all pray for Aaron as well. Um, we're going to start with a song. I think everyone knows it, but if you want to turn to page 26, it's When I See a Brother. It should be in your songbook, page 26. I see a brother standing like a mountain, and I see a sister glowing like a fire. Something inside me like a bubbling fountain quickens my faith and makes me want to stay strong. Another step higher, and I know if he did it for them, God will do it for me. Right the wrongs and set me free. Oh, I 
victory song. A sister who knows what it is to be shackled stands and proclaims that in Jesus' name she is free.
for thy steadfast love is great. It is great up to the heavens, and thy faithfulness, thy faithfulness to the past, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory be known. 
it's uh, clearly a challenge to represent things of spirit with words. just been pickpocketed, but I think you put something in, it's different. <laughs> the challenge being to bring definition for the purpose of edifying, so Paul said when you come together, do so for the edification of one another, um, singing in tongues is okay during a praise service, but you're going to speak in tongues, do it at home so you get edified. When you come together, you bring something of edification, whether it be uh, to speak in a known tongue or just to be better conditioned soil to receive what is spoken. You know, to be stirred up, to be strengthened in the things of the Lord, to have the capacity to receive, because it's clear that there are things that have to be encountered and gone through in order to benefit by a greater expression of what's going on. So um, an example of that is uh, reading a familiar passage of Scripture and was referred to earlier, I, I was reading in Luke the story of the Gethsemane struggle and it said, and an angel prayed for him and strengthened him and he prayed more earnestly and I went, somebody's been messing with that book because it's never been there before. You know, you just, there's things that pop and there's things that means something different than they used to mean. And so to try to identify something and lock it down and define it when it's something that's essentially spiritual, um, you just trust the Lord that there's a distribution by his spirit that meets people where they are. And so getting up and speaking is also an act of faith. I was thinking this morning that <laughs> somebody mentioned that this thing is a paradox. And I was thinking if Paul hadn't already claimed the title, I was going to do it. So I, I figured, well, okay, so I'm the second least of all the saints. <laughs> We're not here to compete with one another, and he claimed the least, so. But then he thought, you know, that's kind of arrogant, too, so. <laughs> not saying Paul was arrogant. Maybe he was. In 1 Corinthians 13, we have what in Christendom is con considered to be a definition of love that takes love out of the realm of humanity and brings it into the realm of divinity. 
And I've considered that this is not only just a, an expression or a definition that gives us a perspective of love that you wouldn't find in the earth. It's just not there. But also, it's, it's kind of defining God. You know, it's not just a description of a, you know, an expression of love, but it's kind of like God is love. Okay. And you can teach a parrot how to say that if you get enough crackers, you know, it's just like, but to bring focus and substance to that, it never fails. It never seeks its own. It believes all things. Well, clearly not, it's not denominational because they only believe what they think is true. But then it, it transitions at the end of the chapter and it talks about that there are things that are going to fail. There are things that are going to cease. I mean, there's some of them it says cease, some fail, some pass away. But it talks about that because there are things that are temporal. They're aids to us in our transition, in our growth, but they also come to a point where they can become blockages. And it becomes necessary to engage the Spirit of God for leaving. So that when you join yourself to the work of the Spirit, His intent is to get you out of what you were established in at some point and learn the lesson of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob though they were in the land of promise they never put a foundation under their house because they always wanted it to be a testimony to we're ready to move not to get out of here but to move forward There's things about receiving the things of the Spirit that require us to accommodate a mindset that that which had been gained to me, I count that to be lost to me, not that it still wasn't nutritional, not that I despise it, not that if I have those that are coming up behind, I wouldn't teach them. You know, it has value. Because yeah. if it didn't have value, you wouldn't have to count it as loss. It would just be... But there are things that, that when we go forward, and there's more in front of us, there's more ahead of us than we've come from. It's, it's like the apostle said, to them that are of full age is meat. It's, it's more than solid food. It's obviously more than milk. But it's not all there is. And that full age doesn't mean completed. It just means you've come through spiritual adolescence where you're trying to figure out how to live from what you are outside you as opposed to being defined by what's outside of you for what you are. And it's, it's part of what is included in the process of 
Hebrews 6 lesson in the third, second, third verse where, you know, having been established in the basic teachings concerning the doctrine of Christ, to use this as a stable platform from which to go forward into the purpose for the doctrines being established. Because Paul, when he came forward on the scene, and it says that he went up to the 12, or the more than 12, but the 12 were certainly there, and he went up to Jerusalem, and he held himself accountable to those that seemed to be pillars of the church. And when he came away, he wrote with great grace and mercy. He said, and they added nothing to me. He could have said it took him three days of controversy to decide whether I was of God or not. Because the bulk of what Paul brought to the church at that time was a transition from literal functional historic events to that which was the intent of those events to testify of something that was available to all men and that was internal and dimensional and inclusive and comprehensive. So he said, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, but it's in the book, He said, henceforth know we him, no more, according to history. And at that point, if we were to follow through spiritually and, and recognize that there is a point at which the pronouns dissolve, that there's no more his, That if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And I don't know how many creations people think there are. But let's shift the word to man, a new man. So there's only two men. There's the first man. And then there's the Lord from heaven. Who also by the mercy of God, is a man. But that new creation man is not nourished and provisioned by that which is of this world. So he said to them, hey, you know, these things, if you just read them, you just say, whoa. Whoa. How to lose a congregation. <laughs> but so much of it is an expression of heart and spirit and the anointing of God breathing on the words that are said. You know, they, yeah. they said, wait, wait, he began to teach and they said, we've never heard it on this manner before. They didn't say, boy, that's a new Bible verse. I mean, we know the verses, but we've never heard it this way. Why? Because the breath of God was on it. Because there was something of substance standing there that wasn't just saying this is the truth. 
He said, I am. And he became an expression of God who gave Moses a business card that says, tell Pharaoh, you can give him my business card, I am. That I do. Oh, I can do. Trust me, I can do. You'll see, I can do. Ten plagues later. I can do. That's not what I am. And, and we're to be his children. We're to be his offspring. We're to be the result of the infusion, not just of a creative act and being born again, but the oversight and ongoing demonstration of God's creative capacity. Because this new creation does not have in itself its cap- a capacity to come to full stature. Natural creation has the capacity, if it doesn't die, to come to maturity. You have to somehow interrupt that life to keep it from coming to physical maturity. Spiritual life is not so. It it, it doesn't have within itself the capacity to generate maturity. It has to be under. It has to be, you know, the the fulfillment of what the apostle said. As you have received the Lord, so walking in him. And there are Christians that are walking before God, seeking to advance by worshiping Jesus as Lord. Is he Lord? Okay. We're worshiping him as Lord. You know, the chin 42 degrees up, the hands out, the tears streaming down the face. Will that grow you up? It might bring confirmation to things that are going on inside. It can be, it can be a point of reference. It can be a point of refreshing. But it is not a generative point. The only thing that generates the process of this new creation is that you're submitted in the same way as you have received him, so walking in him by receiving. You have to be joined. You have to be under. You have to be supplicant. Psalm 139. 16. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect. Jesus, when he was enjoined by John's disciples, said, hey, Herod wants to talk to you. He said, go tell Herod, that this day and tomorrow I do signs, miracles, and wonders, and the third day I'll be perfected. I mean, (laughs) Hebrews 5 says, In the days of his flesh, with loud crying, tears, supplications, and prayers, unto him who is able to save him, Jesus had to be saved. He had to be strengthened by an angel 
in order to pray to the completion of his accountability to God before he died for the sins of the world. Because it wasn't Jesus doing it for the Father, although he loved the Father. It was God reconciling the world to himself in the Son. And so there's a great mystery. There's a great disconnect between rational thought and spiritual process. And the apostle accounts for this. He said, great is the mystery of godliness. There's some mysteries that he addressed. He said, I'll show you a mystery. We should not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. In another place, he said, it's been given unto me to declare the mystery that God was seeking to join the Gentiles to his purpose and not to just leave it as the seeds, but to redefine it as the seed, which is Christ. And it doesn't have any kind of differentiation or speciality in its treatment, whether bond or free, Jew or Greek, male or female. It's that his purpose has been dispersed through all of time, dispensed, if you please, scattered through time as a field by a sower to gather all things, both in heaven and in earth, even in Christ. And in being born again, we are joined to an opportunity and a great hope, and there's a door that is opened unto us in heavenly places that no man could open. But thank God no man can close. You can't close it. You can't close the door that's been opened to you. You can't get unborn again. And I'll be honest with you, because we've already heard in this unconvention that what God has started he cannot fail to complete. And what that means is, if you're born again, you are going to get a glorified body. Because that's the purpose for being born again, is to finish. And the evidence of finish is the manifestation of a new creation. That new creation has to work in the hidden place, we could read more of Psalm 139 when it's talking about the forming of Christ. We could look with higher definition into the 18 hidden years of Jesus. But we see him clearly walking to Cana with his mother, and he did not know that his public ministry was going to start that day. He was committed to what he was before God today. And he let that be his definition. But that definition isn't written in stone. It moves. You can't sustain the righteousness of a son apart from being subjected to your father on a daily basis. Paul was such a wonderful encouragement to the church. But if you look at the churches 
in the world today, many of them quote Paul, but they can't get along with one another. They can't even agree on what Paul meant by what he wrote. But there has to come a solution. And we stand in a place where we can be a solution. By becoming. And it's not going to be by preaching. It's not going to be a conceptual transmission of some greater insight into the purpose and the thought of God that's going to bring salvation to the world. It has to be a manifestation. And when Paul began to see this, he said, I am a son. I will obviously come to visions and revelations of the purpose of my father. It's my inheritance. It's, it's my right as a son. Can't live in the kingdom of God without seeing things from an otherworldly experience and position. You can't stand on the earth and see the kingdom of God, though, either. You got to be mobile. When I was two years old, I was ambulatory, but I couldn't see what was on top of the table. I could tell you how much gum was stuck under it, but. <laughs> well, if I reached high enough. But by growth, your perspective changes and you see the same thing from a different point of view because you're not the same. And this is the challenge of us that we would grow up, come to full age. Isaiah was referenced this morning prophetically. The first chapter, the 18th verse, God was calling his sons through the prophet. And it was a very Jewish meeting. He said, can we talk? Because if I can get you to see that sin is red, we have a pl platform for moving forward. And that is a battle. That is a battle of faith to see sin as red. Why is it important? Because sin is so pervasive. What's our definition of sin? Violation of the commandment, that's pretty easy. What about all that's not of faith? A little more invasive? I would be free of murder if he had not said, but if you hate. Yeah. 
And then, of course, John had to throw his two cents in. He said, yeah, but if you don't love, you don't know God. Oh, but I'm born again. I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. You're going to tell me I don't know God? Well, see, that's the difficulty of words, even if they're written in the book, right? What do you mean you don't know God? Well, do you know him as he knows you? That I might know him as I am known of him? See that it just, there's this invasiveness to spirit. You have to take my word for it. I mean, I could pour it out, but I might get in trouble. A cup is not empty. You say, no kidding, it's got water in it. Okay, so let's bring another definition. That cup is full. You say, no, idiot, it's half full. No, there's air in the other half. See, the scientists laughed when I said that. It's kind of a contextual joke. But spirit is more invasive than air. There are molecules that make up this cup, and it's spirit that holds them together. They're upheld. Natural is supported by spiritual, and natural can be flexed. You can do it with earth resources. You can put enough power on a barn door to make it fly. But clearly, spiritual supersedes natural. Spirit can walk on water. Spirit can multiply loaves and fishes. You know, they were astounded. They took up 12 baskets. They ate on it for a week. Probably some of it molded. Fish again. But to consider a God and then try to frame him by what the earth thinks is miraculous, it's come so far short. The capacity of God even defined by six days of creation. It's not the intent or the scope or the capacity of his, of his omnipotence defined by natural creation. He's going to bring of that natural creation saviors far greater to redeem what is made inadequate and bring it to the full intent of which you created it for. Especially when it's incapacitated to help you. Seeing my scarletness. How about just saying that? Seeing that In my being born again, I am a new creature. 
when there's people in the ministry that's moved that don't believe they're a son. And it's okay. Because that knowledge isn't going to change the functioning of the Spirit of God in their soul. Because knowledge doesn't fuel salvation. To have a right heart and bad doctrine is better. Doctrine can be solved with a dream. Doctrine can be solved with a vision. Ask Peter. Arise, kill and eat. Ooh, Lord, not me. Oh, was that a commandment? Sometimes we're set up by our visions. I think I've been set up by grace. I did not start this for what I'm experiencing right now. I didn't. And it was a point in my life when I was concerned because I knew I wasn't experiencing what was being described as needing to be walked through. But I couldn't fake it. I couldn't make it happen. So you just continue. And as you grow, you get down to meteor issues where the superficiality of what is appearing gets peeled back and you start getting into what makes this work. In the fourth chapter of Romans, the sixth, seventh, and eighth verse, the apostle says, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. You know, there's no blessed available for man apart from Christ. The first six days were created. The seventh day was blessed and sanctified. If you don't make it into the seventh day, Jesus said you can either see or enter into the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. And then being born again, you have to learn to live by faith. Woo! I'm not sure what faith means to everybody, but to me it means warfare. I have to fight every day because my experience and my environment lie to me constantly. They are an assault against faith. We could back up a verse in Psalm 139 and see that the creative capacity of God is in a hidden place. It's not just hidden from the world. It's hidden from me. Sometimes the greatest evidence of progress in my life is that I look worse. And I recognize I didn't get worse. I was this bad the whole time. I just didn't see it. I didn't recognize how much mercy there was in the body of Christ to put up with me. Because they probably saw it before I did. Okay, they definitely saw it before I did. (laughs) 
but his faithfulness. His faithfulness to give the law so that there could be a definition in the earth of what wasn't acceptable. To make climbing the ladder a better option. You know, if the ladder that is Christ doesn't hit the dirt, if it hangs 15 feet off the ground, it's of no great value to the earth. There has to be a translation. There has to be a communication of God that's carnal enough so it can be there to define both our problem and his provision. But we can't just stay there. Otherwise, it puts us in a position of hoping for something to come out of the sky at some point in history and solve the problem. And that's not going to happen. It's not. We've heard in the past couple days already that God's intent is to bring many sons of the same ilk and characteristic as the prototype forward. And then the prototype threw down the gauntlet to his children. And he said, not only the same, as if that wasn't enough, the same as I have done. Overcome the world, live without sin, subordinate all nature under my feet, command the winds and the waves, raise the dead, heal the sick, the same that I have done. And then he could have stopped. It would have been enough of a challenge, but he didn't. And he said, and greater. What? And I've had people that come up to me and say, based on what I hear you preaching, I think you're taking Jesus out of his rightful place. I thought, well... You think a lot more of my capacity than I do. <laughs> as far as I know, he's seated together with his father and his father's throne, and that's unshakable. If I wanted to move him. So let's get that off the board. But I think I'm trying to stay in faith, attain to a faith, and communicate as ineffectively as words can do and trust the Spirit to encourage the body of Christ that this is the purpose that he came is so that we would. How is it defaming his legacy to fulfill the words that he laid before us? that there would be a manifestation in the earth, that that which is born in sin, shapen in iniquity, that would come to a manifestation that has never been seen in this earth. I mean, talk about narcissism. I mean, if it was self-sourced, or if we had some sense that we could, you know, bring something to the table to facilitate this. But there is something required of me. 
It's complicity by subjection. Because this is a votive offering. And it's a daily requirement. Is it possible to be born again and be in a stasis whereby you stay a baby for decades? Oh, absolutely. It's in the Bible. He did. We could do the quoted together thing, right? (laughs) When it's time that you should be You're not, because you have stayed in a state depending upon what others process from God to nourish you. That's what milk is. It passes through somebody else's digestive process so that it can be nutritive to you because you can't handle anything that isn't milk. But if you need milk, you better get it. You know, it's, it's uh, sometimes, okay, every day it's an ego crush to be involved with the Spirit of God. But it's equally a bad idea to put the natural man in judgment over a spiritual process. Well, I don't, I don't see any change. So what? Well, I mean... I should, where's the fruit? I don't know, you hungry? What do you mean, where's the fruit? It afterwards yields. This, the tree of life is the cross. And it doesn't have fruit on it. Why do you think Adam and Eve never ate of it? They weren't told not to. It was the intent of God that they would eat of it, but he couldn't make them eat of the tree of life by commandment. Jesus was never told of the Father, go to the cross. He resonated as he grew in the Spirit. And he subjected himself to the Father. And he stayed under. And he learned to live by faith and dependency. And that is the cross. He was never commanded to go die. Say, well, it says that this commandment have I received of my Father. But what is the commandment of the Father to the Son? What was the rejoicing of the prodigal's father when he saw his son coming over the hill and he ran out to meet him? Was it because the son knew the Father? It was not. Because the son was coming back for the purpose of learning the Father. And he rejoiced because he already had one son that was resistant. And although everything that he had was intended for that son, he never valued the father for the father. Remember, one of the ministries years ago kind of told a 
a parable about two brothers and their father was, was in the Middle Ages and he was a, a clocksmith or whatever you call those. Worked on timepieces. And the one son enjoyed the provision of the father because he was really good and people paid him well. And the other son started out sweeping the floor and learning the trade. And so the father is dying and the two boys are there. And he said, you know, we've, we've lived to the measure of my income. I really don't have anything to bequeath to you except that you would have learned how to support yourself by being whatever that is. So the one son that hadn't paid any attention had no inheritance. The other son, because he had welded himself to the father, had a way of making a livelihood. And we have an opportunity by submitting ourselves to the Spirit of God on a daily basis, and this submission is in faith. There's no formula. When I began to preach a daily offering. Somebody came up to me and said, how do I do that? I said, it doesn't matter, do it wrong. <laughs> the whole context of offering is that God is going to work with the offering to bring it up and to improve it. And the asininity of thinking that anything you do for the first time is going to be perfect should arrest you anyhow. And they didn't come back for a while and talk to me, but we've mended that fence. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, and blessed is the man to whom he will impute righteousness. And I have a standing before God, and I am red. But it's been a battle for that to be functional. I've had to walk through condemnation. And, it, and that condemnation has had to be overcome. And sometimes it's had to be as literal as I know your provision for man in Christ has to include somebody that's standing where I am and still get them home. Sometimes that's the only thing I could hang my hat on. Because I'm not worthy. And I, and I can't get to the point of being worthy to be read. Because it's based on another's sacrifice. It's based on a provision by which I am engaged through faith for it to be operational in my life. And the purpose of it being operational isn't so that I just go sin. so that I can go on. Because it takes a clear conscience before God to go forward. I mean, the measure that it takes to have your conscience clean from dead works is not anything like what it takes to have your conscience clean to receive an inheritance. It just isn't. Right? Repentance from dead works is one of the six basic doctrines that we're supposed to have learned and have under our feet. And that means that we're walking in them. That they're functional. They support us as a foundation. 
And we never leave those things. We don't despise those things. But we're stabilized so that we stand secure because they function on a daily basis. I would have no hope if it wasn't for imputed righteousness. The word of the Lord. We could start reading in John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. You know what that makes this? Not the word of God. Sorry. It wasn't in the beginning. And it's never been God. Inspired of God. Holy scriptures. Profitable for doctrine, for reproof. To establish us. To encourage us. To be nutritive to us as we walk. But I got to be honest, and I don't have another 295 days, years, sorry. I don't have another 295 years, I'm pretty sure. I know my knee doesn't. But Enoch did this without the book. Right? There was no manifestation. There was no glorified body on the planet as a manifestation that he completed it, but he didn't see death. And it says, God took him. And I, I, I don't think he took him so he wouldn't see death. I think he took him so nobody would see a glorified body ahead of time. There's others. I mean, there's a real obvious one, right? Somebody wanted to say who that obvious one? Jesus died. Who else? Elijah. He didn't die. Something was working in him. And it's an advancement of the hope that Enoch begins to speak by or with or from or two, I guess prepositions go along with the pronouns. Because he didn't take 365 days to do it. But he didn't die. And he took his body with him. You know, we can extrapolate from there, it gets less obvious, but it's still there. The testimony is there. Is this what you're investing in? Is this a vision that you have? That the promise of God from the beginning was eternal life? And it isn't, it isn't a chronological event. It's a condition of a relationship with God. And it's acquired one day, one sacrifice at a time. I lay my life down. I take my life up again. This commandment I have received of my Father. If you ask the church, what is Jesus' commandment? They say, well, we love one another. And I'm not against, I'm not, 
But that isn't the commandment that Jesus lived by. The law of the spirit of life in Christ that makes us free from everything that is natural is that we lay our life down one day at a time and we're raised up by the glory of God so that we can lay it down again tomorrow. It's called growth. There's no spiritual maturity without this functioning. But if I can't get to the place where I'm read, no, if I can't take that first step of receiving on a functional basis an imputed righteousness that sets my sin aside, How do I get to seeing white? Though they're scarlet, they shall be. So you you have to get to step one first. So the word of the Lord is not the book. The word of the Lord is what Jesus said. The book testifies of me. The word of the Lord is Christ. The provision of God for the salvation of the world is Christ. And we're called through being born again and subjected to our Father to live as Christ. Yeah, and that's a reconciliation that you got to battle for. No? There is no greater tribulation. Matthew 24, there's a metaphor of this there. And it would seem to lead us to believe that there are external circumstances that are happening that's going to come upon the earth and it's going to be a great tribulation, never before or never after that scene. I wouldn't contend with that application or lose one drop of blood on that battleground. But it is not where things really happen. No external tribulation is going to produce the spiritual life. It may bring you to an awareness of your lack. <laughs> but this tribulation of the conversion of the soul from being naturally oriented to being knowledge resourced to being scripturally tied I can think quickly of at least five things that the Bible says it's not telling us. And we're not going to finish because we know the book. It can be an assistance. I don't want to throw the book away. I may not read a bunch of scripture, but I make scriptural references as much as anyone when I preach. But we got to transcend. We have to exceed the limitations that are naturally referencing. Because this is about becoming by receiving. To be established. And so the word of the Lord is sharper. It's not a sword. That's the analogy. And it doesn't divide to make two piles. Soul over here, spirit over here. It separates, it says, so you can see what's under, what's really working here. Mm 
Because if you're just locked down by sin, as a physical or a literal or, you know, a thought process, what about the definition of sin with all that falls short of the glory of God? That not finishing the intent for which you're born again is sin. I didn't make it up. And it isn't sin because it's some heinous act or violation of social mores or any of that nonsense. It's a sin because it doesn't fulfill the intent of the one who began. You haven't been fully joined to his intent. And he's made every provision that we could be so. All things that pertain to life and godliness. And so, needless to say, and it isn't once, but I came to a place where I was so discouraged by what I didn't see. That's the real weakness of putting the natural man in judgment of a spiritual process. Right? To give him the say-so of what isn't seen. Because he can't function on that platform. He can't function without seeing, without knowing, without tasting, without touching, without being involved in the beggarly elements of this world, as Paul put it in Colossians 2. This has to be exceeded. We have to go past. And we've been given an imputed righteousness so we can. You know why? Because until we exceed it, we're still going to need to have our sins not remitted and a righteousness imputed. If that isn't established in a functional way so that it's real, it sets you aside from condemnation. Who is it that condemns? God's justifying. You know who condemns you? It isn't old scratch. He accuses you. And when he accuses you, he brings data. And it's accurate. Who condemns? When you take it. Instead of saying, sorry, I know why I'm a target, because you are scared spitless of imputed righteousness. Thanks for reminding me that I don't stand in my own rightness. But by faith, I can partake of a life that was shed so that I could participate in the things of God by faith. Thank you. That's agreeing with your adversary, right? You're a schmuck. Yeah, I am. Too bad for you, though. I'm not standing in my schmuckness. <laughs> I'm in spite of that. And I'm going forward into the things that are going to finish the forming of Christ to full stature. Because those things aren't going to go until that happens. 
Imputed righteousness is a provision of God so that we can finish the course. Okay, somebody's thinking it. I'm going to say it. So, can you just sin and depend on imputed righteousness? Yes. It'll work every time. One sacrifice, all sins, all time for all men. There is therefore now no further need for a sacrifice for sin. It's in the book. Will you grow if you do? Uh Uh-uh. Oh, no. So then what happens? Well, I don't know. Maybe your passport is stamped for the next stage. Maybe you're going to have to see that it works before you're willing to be divorced from your own resources and depend upon his. Because that's what really is going to set the whole creation free. It's a manifestation that this actually works. And it takes it from being a gospel that crazy people preach when it's snowing outside. Because it's never going to solve the world's problem. It doesn't solve mine. Well, this is the truth. Well, that's your opinion. I don't see it that way. Well, God hasn't spoken that to me. You ever heard that one? Okay, let's make it personal. You ever said that one? Until there's a manifestation, everything's opinion. And the opinion of those that are going through the process may be real, but how do you know? How do they even know? This is by faith. If my faith doesn't promote structure and substance in me that I can believe that in spite of my inability, in spite of my failures, that he remains faithful... How am I going to get to the finished work of the cross? It won't work. It comes to a point of diminishing return and you get locked down by your own analysis. And you begin to contort with the doctrines that have been set by apostolic structure. And you become subject to every wind. Well, maybe it's this. Well, who's to say? You're done. You're toast. Until there's a manifestation that clears the air. And you know, there's some critical things about manifestation, and I'm sorry if I've already said it, I'm going to say it again. A manifestation obviously has to be seen. And it's not enough that it's seen. It has to be seen by those that need to see it. And it's not enough that it's seen by those that need to see it. They need to see it for what it is. So just having a glorified body walking around campus, it's kind of like somebody saying, well, I hope you're right. Well, if I am, what good is it going to do you? You're going to be convinced in your heart. You have to be engaged to the point of being willing to walk away from your life. That's austere. It's severe. 
In the second chapter of Hebrews, the fifth verse, the author is developing priesthood by comparing anything and everything to son. And so he says, uh, he compares son to angels. He says, so what about angels compared to son? Well, the son's created a little lower than the angels. Hmm. Suspicious already, right? But the purpose of being created lower than the angels is for the purpose of dying. And the result of dying as a son is being raised up and by inheritance receiving a name far above all angels. And then in the fifth chapter of the second verse, he said, By the way, unto which of the angels did he subject the power of the world that is not yet manifested? To whom did he make access to governmental authority that isn't of this world? And the answer is, it's not angels. Angels want to see into the things that we are being confronted by and have an opportunity. There's been a door that has been opened in heaven. And if you're born again, you've walked through it. Because he knocked on it and you opened it. And his intent is when he comes in to partake of you and you partake of him. That they might be one as we are one. What do I mean? One with one another because the Son and the Father were one? No. That they might be one as we are one. What? One with the Father. Try be one with one another without the Father. That's, it's like taking every thought into captivity. It's another verse that we've already referenced is that by the church, the intent of God is to bring testimony by the church. Ephesians 4, that we would grow up into him who is the head in everything except he's still the head, right? Doesn't say that. It says that we would grow up into him who is the head in all things. Well, what happens to the picture that we have of the body of Christ? That we're all members and we all bring something to the table and it's wonderful and one's the liver and the other's the kidney and somebody's the eye. And You ever seen a kidney grow up to be a head? No. See, these preliminary things that give us a concept of what we're dealing with and a sense of what corporate might mean and the benefit of living together and encouraging one another that stabilized this and gave us some concept when we were yet babies because we understood the physical body and we thought if we understood that, then we understood the things of spirit. They have to be exceeded. Because God's intent is to bring something out of what was the original creative work. So it has to be of Adam, but of God. 
to bring a full testimony to the provision of God, of his love for the world, there has to be that which is of the world that is joined to God. And I don't mean joined by Christ. I mean joined by inheritance. That it would grow up to be fully mature son and from the basis of a full maturity inherit something that far exceeds the expression of a fully mature son. Is that the nice? Maybe. But we're going to walk on water anyway. Why be scared of the nice? <laughs> Jesus, in his maturity, travailed. And he noted that even though he had said, I and the Father are one, it didn't mean that they were the same. It meant we're on the same page. We're bonded to the same purpose. And I'm living my life not unto myself, but unto the will of God. But it didn't make him God. How could he pray to God and say, not my will, but thine? So a full son, and yet not yet the father. In other places, he said, I go to the father. The father is greater than I am. I live by the father, right? To receive by inheritance a name that is far above. All names. As amazing, as challenging, as threatening as Jesus was to the established orders of that day, he was not the Father. And what was expressed through him was an extremely limited manifestation of what was working in him. When Jesus stood in front of Lazarus' tomb and there were those that said, you know, I wish you'd gotten here a few days ago, he wouldn't have had to die. He said, well, he's asleep. And then it said he said he's dead and spoke to them plainly, you know, in their language, in other words, you know. And he said, uh, but he'll rise. Oh, Lord, we know that he'll, in the, he said, no, I am. Now, he wasn't saying I'm raised and I've been joined to the Father as one, seated in my Father's throne. He wasn't saying that. He hadn't been. What he was saying is that if you learn to live as Christ and you lay your life down, you're living in a resurrecting authority that is sourced in another kingdom, in another realm that isn't limited by time and distance. It isn't limited by the frailty of nature. It's resourced in something that is... Guaranteed. 
did Jesus raise himself from the dead? But he said, I lay my life down and I take it up again. That would seem to be a conundrum. What he was saying was, because I'm joined to the Father and I lay my life down, he will raise me up. I'm joined to a guaranteed authority that cannot fail. Because it's not resourced in me. It's not resourced in the earth. It's not resourced in nature. It resourced in God himself, and it reaches back to the intent that he started this process for. And if you don't think he wants it more than I do, first verse of the seventh chapter of Micah says, long have I waited to partake of the first ripe fruit. That can be you. In Christ, it's your calling. In Christ, it's your destiny. In Christ, you will get there. When? I don't know. could be 500 years into the millennium. But he can't not finish what he starts. And he's got foreknowledge. So he looked to the end before he began the beginning. If you're born again, he cannot deny himself. John said, we're born again, not of blood, not of the will of man, not the will of the flesh, but we've been born again of God. That means he's going to harvest. It can't fail. So relax. Take a deep breath and live today in faith before your God. Well, I thought I'd be in high school by now, and it looks like I'm in kindergarten. Well, do a good job in kindergarten so you can go to first grade. Right? You got to make yourself of no reputation at some point. Today is a good time. And if you're really in high school and nobody else knew it, you could go and take all your tests. And I mean, you might slow down a little bit when you get to ninth grade, but you know, you should get to grade school pretty quick. Just take the test. It's not just an opportunity, although it's an opportunity. It's the mystery of godliness, and it's a great mystery. So I have found that I've been in a huge, just, you know, I guess I had to counsel myself. And this is how the counsel came. And I, th- I think it was good counsel. The first thing that came, because I just said, Lord, I, I don't have a frame of reference. I don't know what to do, where to go, how to act, I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know what it's going to look like when it shows up. I mean, it just, 
There's no up, there's no down, there's no time, there's no distance. It's just spirit. You know, it's like Jesus saying he's not dead. And I said the cup's full, but it's only half full of water. Spirit is, and this is what came, three things. He said, you need to be content. So I recognized there had to be a huge discrepancy between being content and being satisfied. Because I'm not satisfied. And then behind that, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be satisfied when I'm in his likeness, but I have to be content before I'm satisfied, right? (laughs) So to be content with godliness is great gain. Whereas the natural man would look at his gain as evidence of godliness. Where's the fruit? Well, raise the dead, heal the sick, glorify the name. Depart from me, I didn't know you. Content. The second piece of counsel that came was be thankful. And the scripture that came behind it was you be thankful in, not for, all things. In everything, give thanks. Not for everything. But that kind of is built on you have to kind of begin by being content with godliness before you can be thankful in. And then the third thing was endure. And the scripture that floated in behind that, you might you know, suspect that he, for the joy that was set, Endured. How can you endure the cross without seeing the fruit? Only by faith. How can you trust for whiteness if you're not established in redness? See, I was copying you. That was just an act of encouragement. <laughs> You're welcome. So, you um, appreciate so much the ministries making the effort to come up here. And the Lord was merciful to make the winter a little nicer for a window. I'm a, li- I'm a little disappointed with that, but still. <laughs> I wanted some fellowship of suffering. <laughs> but you know, it was something I was thinking from the first service right through this one, that is that um, 
uh, that we've been um, ministered to, I think, uh, with what Colossians 1 calls the hope of the gospel. Um, and it says, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And I think we've been ministered by the Spirit of God. And I appreciate the, you know, we've come a, come a ways. Someone stands here and tells you, don't worry about it, there's no test. Uh, don't worry about it, you don't have to contend for the faith. You know, we'd all just look at them. And if you're spiritual, you pray for them. If you're carnal, you'd sneer. But there's a scripture that's been running over in my mind um, related to this. Uh, because I, I appreciate the ministration of the Spirit to frame everything that's come this weekend in hope. Um, and I, I, there's a scripture in Micah 6. And it talks about something that's abominable. That's, that's like a, that's a bad word, you know. Abominable. I don't know. Can you get worse than abominable? Um, but it says it's a scant measure that is abominable. And I thought how important it is for us to quit measuring ourselves. <coughs> because this is a, the referent point that we've heard this weekend is the referent point of a heavenly father that loves us and has an eternal purpose destined for us. And so when we measure ourselves and perhaps disqualify ourselves with our measurement, it is really um, uh, a lack of faith, not in ourselves. It's a lack of faith in a heavenly father that has a, uh, uh, an eternal purpose and destiny for his people. And I thought that, in fact, is the confidence that we can walk out of here with today. I could read lots of scriptures, which I'm not going to, but there's one in particular that I like, and it's in 2 Corinthians 5. You don't have to turn there. It's 4 and 5. It's talking about we do groan, being burdened. Not we, that we'd be unclothed, but that we'd be clothed upon. And, and then it, it describes what does that mean? That means that mortality would be fully, I put in fully, but just so we get it, fully swallowed up of the life of God. That's the groaning that's going on. Lord, I can't swallow up this mortality, but I know your intention is to swallow up fully the mortality that we still get glimpses of. But then, then he says something that I think is so important, the next verse. And it starts out, verse 5, it says, Now. Now. Joe read that verse in Ephesians 3, right, Joe? Now. <laughs> now. He that wrought us. That means to fashion, to work fully, to accomplish. 
He that wrought us for the self-same thing is God. So the reason you and I can go forward because it's God that's at work. And I, one of my favorite verses is in Hebrews 13. Working in you what is well-pleasing. Isn't that good? Don't leave here with some burden of responsibility. <laughs> because you'll lose your hope. Our hope and our confidence is in the one that is working in us. What is well-pleasing in His sight? Isn't that a wonderful thing? <laughs> Isn't that a lively hope? Our hope is in the Lord. So we appreciate the weekend, appreciate coming together. I've been, uh, you know, I, I know, I've always known before we even knew about the pandemic that being around each other, we catch germs. I mean, I've always worried that, about that a little bit. And when we couldn't hug anymore, I know some of you were really downcast, like my mom, but I... <laughs> I said, well, thank you, Lord. We'll just take it right now, you know. And, but it is better to be face-to-face, -face, I have to say. Sometimes the best you get on a Zoom meeting, some of these guys can attest to that. You have all these little boxes, right? And, you're, and it's, you, once in a while, the enemy lies to you that you're by yourself in the room preaching. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty good lie. I'm not saying. <laughs> but once in a while, you look in one little square. And you see this hand go up. <laughs> Who's in there? Who is that? <laughs> so it's great to be together. <laughs> Much better. Yeah. All right. Why don't we stand? We'll have an offering and a song and maybe a few announcements.